0: Praised be Jesus Christ, peace be with you today, November the 14th, Sunday, the second to last Sunday of the liturgical year. Uh, Of course, next Sunday, I'm speaking in the ordinary form of the Roman Rite, next Sunday will be the Feast of Christ the King, and the following Sunday after that will be the beginning of Advent. So we're right up here towards the, the turning of the seasons and the beginning of, at least liturgically, a new year and a few weeks later of the civil year. But I gotta tell you, it doesn't really feel like that today here in beautiful Menlo Park. It's another sunny, warm afternoon, and it feels like, uh, I don't know, the end of summer. (laughs) Blue sky and there's squirrels running in the trees. And uh, yeah, the only way that you would know it's this season is that the ground is covered with fallen leaves. Other than that, Uh, The air would deceive you into thinking it's much earlier in the year So once again I have to apologize for not recording a podcast last week This is becoming the new normal for me (laughs) I suppose the weekends are filling up more and more often with different activities, different good things I am trying to uh, be faithful to this podcast But things are getting pretty busy here at the seminary as we approach the end of our our fall term. Uh, Last weekend we had a wonderful conference here for sacred musicians and sacred artists. And the reason for that was that Archbishop Cordiglione of San Francisco, he had commissioned uh, this new work of sacred music. It's a whole mass, it's called the Requiem for the Homeless. And they've they've been doing um, a whole year of activities for the homeless this, this last year. It's just ended. Um, and they, so they've done all kinds of things within this archdiocese. And I wasn't here for most of it. I was in Oregon. But this was kind of the capstone on the year. They celebrated this wonderful Mass at the Cathedral, and they debuted this new work of art, this work of sacred music that had been composed. And it really is beautiful. You can listen to it on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing, the Requiem Mass for the Homeless. And then, so after they had this Mass, which was last Saturday, um, they had this conference here at the seminary, and a lot of very, very well-known people, (laughs) in the Catholic world at least, gathered here uh, to listen to the Archbishop and the composer of the Mass, Frank LaRocca. And other Catholic artists come and speak about, well, so those two spoke about this Mass that they had composed, and then others just spoke about kind of the vocation of Catholic artists, and sacred music, what makes music sacred versus secular, and the transcendence of beauty, and all sorts of things that, you know, that's totally my, like, wheelhouse. (laughs) I love talking about those things. So I was there for a lot of that conference, Um, the talks, the panel, they had a lovely social afterwards where I got to meet some interesting people, including uh, a professor. This is kind of a funny just coincidence or relationship, but I had a, a Zoom class in Gregorian chant uh, the summer before last, and um, it was taught by this woman professor from New York, uh, Dunwoody Seminary, or at Saint Joseph's Seminary in Dunwoody, New York. So they were doing this whole sacred music program where you could take classes online. So I took one class for a week. It was an intensive with her, and then lo and behold, there she was at the social there the other night. So I got to meet her in person, which was very nice. And uh, I've been working on composing a little something, so I got to share that with her and get her feedback, which was pretty cool. Um, and I, yeah, I got to just meet, meet some, some big players in the world of Catholic arts right now, which is surprisingly thriving. It's going through kind of a renaissance, and I'm so glad to see it. Archbishop Coy you know, is behind that, and he's founded this organization called the Benedict XVI Institute here in San Francisco, And their mission, really, is to promote the restoration of sacred art, sacred music, um, but also visual arts, iconography, poetry, all of this, you know, new contemporary compositions, but in continuity with tradition, with classical forms. And I love it. I love their mission, and I love all the work they're doing. It's so good. It's inspiring, really. And also that day here, the day of the conference, they had a concert, with uh, three different settings of the tantum ergo which you may know it's this Gregorian chant hymn the uh, text, I think it maybe the melody, I'm not sure, but the text was composed by St. Thomas Aquinas and we'll always sing it at benediction of the Blessed Sacrament so um, whenever we have adoration, you know, then at the end there's a benediction and uh, this hymn is sung and there's many different settings of it, chant settings you know, um But they did three new compositions. Well, they did three compositions. One was brand new for that concert. So it was was the debut performance. And then the two others, I think, were written sometime in the past. One is by Kevin Allen, who's a well-known Catholic composer. One by Frank LaRocca, who was the uh, composer of the Requiem for the Homeless. The third one, I forget his name, Bobby Robert um, something. And he's a local composer here in San Francisco, Catholic guy. And uh, wrote a very, very beautiful setting. So we got to hear these three different polyphonic settings, multiple voices, overlapping in wonderful harmony um, back-to-back in our chapel, which was really lovely. So it's, yeah, all in the service of beauty. Um, Yeah, I think I've talked about this in the podcast before, but I very much uh, am in agreement with sort of the Bishop Robert Barron School of Evangelization in this sense he seems to really get that beauty captivates, beauty fascinates, beauty gets past people's defenses. (laughs) You know, uh, truth in our day, it's kind of difficult to make a beginning just simply by arguing on the basis of truth or trying to argue to the truth. Um, Truth is kind of out of fashion, you know, in some ways. So it's a difficult place to start. But beauty um, when you see something beautiful, it seizes you, it captures you. And in a sense, your heart is, is enraptured, you're taken by it, um, if, you're, if you're receptive. And so beauty, at least, it's not always going to be the case, but beauty has the capacity, has the potential to really convert those who have walls up, who have defenses, they're guarded. It can, it, it can kind of sneak past the walls and get to the heart. So I'm very much in favor of beauty um, and especially this, this mission of restoring classical forms, doing new compositions, doing new things, but in a classical way. Um, yeah, because I think what our forefathers have handed down to us, what has withstood the test of time, remains relevant. And... Uh, if we have artists who are trained in those forms, who can create new works, but in continuity with the canons and the traditions of the past, well, that's kind of where the life is. (laughs) That's kind of where, I don't know, that's where we can really bring about a beauty that is both ever ancient and ever new, like St. Augustine says, and uh, draw people in, and they will wonder, what is this? When you hear uh, one of these Tantum Ergo settings, for example, that we heard the other night, or you see a beautiful icon, or you hear uh, a haunting piece of poetry, a verse or something, you know, or if you heard this music of the Requiem Mass, you might not know anything about the Catholic Church, but you hear that and wonder, what is this? And heart will cry out, deep will speak unto deep, and that could be the beginning of a conversion, you know, or a deepening of, of, of one's faith. So, for all these reasons and many more, I'm in favor of that whole mission of restoring beauty. So it was very lovely to have this conference here at the seminary. It's a real gift. Also last week we had our annual installation mass for lectors and acolytes. And you may remember that for the past, well not not this last year, but two years before that, I was installed as first a lector, then an acolyte. So this year I got nothing, because I've already received those ministries. But I got to see several of my brother seminarians, including a couple of my diocesan brothers from Portland, receive the ministries of lector and acolyte, which was a joy, and it was a different experience for me this time to be sitting in the pews or in the choir stalls uh, rather than receiving one of the ministries. So the next big step for me, milestone, will be the mass of admission to candidacy, which will be in February. Um, I'll be admitted as a candidate for holy orders, provided that all goes as planned. And then subsequent to that will be, of course, ordination to the diaconate, which I'm looking forward to. It's drawing ever closer, about six months away, and and we'll be there. What else? I'm making glacial progress on my thesis. I uh, found a wonderful book this week that's very helpful for the section I'm working on right now, which is the Epistle to the Hebrews, looking at the connection between um, Christ's sonship, his priesthood, and his obedience. I've got to kind of lay this foundation scripturally for the argument I will then proceed to, to build up later. So I'm laying the foundation, but I found this helpful book. It's called The Paradox of Sonship by a guy called Jamieson. He's a Protestant minister. But it's interesting, all throughout the book, pretty much every page, he's citing Catholics, Catholic sources, Catholic thinkers, uh, as well as the Church Fathers. So he's very, 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 very in line with the Catholic tradition. I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, if he converts one day. (laughs) But uh, this book is very good. It's called, I don't know if I mentioned the title yet or not, it's called The Paradox of Sonship. And it's all about how the Epistle to the Hebrews deals with the identity of Christ as the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, and also as sort of the messianic Son. And he's advancing a um, kind of an an answer, really, to this scholarly question of in the beginning of the Epistle to the Hebrews, where it says Christ... um, inherits a name, you know, he ascends into heaven, he's exalted, sits at the right hand of the Father, and it says he's exalted above all the angels, just as much as the name he has received is more glorious than theirs. So what's the name that he receives? This is an interesting question. And Jameson at least thinks that the name is Son, but you have to be careful with that because, of course, Jesus eternally is the Son of God. So, we're clearly not saying that he wasn't the Son before and he becomes the Son later. So, you have to distinguish two senses of the word Son. On the one hand, he is the Son from all eternity, the Son of God. On the other hand, he becomes the Messianic Son in the sense of he inherits this office, um, which the psalmist talks about. There's the Psalms where, you know, uh, God says, for example, um, I shall be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And he's speaking about the heir of David, the Messiah who will later come. So Jesus comes to earth. He's the eternal son of God, um, clothed in human flesh, made uh, a partaker in our nature. And uh, at one point, Jamieson makes a Lord of the Rings analogy that I really like. He says, Jesus comes to earth like Aragorn, um, wandering through the wilds of Middle Earth. He is the heir i mean he is the rightful king of gondor but he's not the king yet he's not the king until everything is completely accomplished and sauron is defeated and then they come out out of the gates to him and crown him and welcome him in so it's a bit like that with christ he's the eternal son of god he is the son like no question he is the son but then he comes into earth and throughout his whole earthly ministry and everything um, he is sort of the messiah in waiting. He's the messiah like in secret uh, until he's accomplished his death and resurrection and he's exalted into heaven and then he inherits the name of son in the sense of the messianic son because he's accomplished his victory, he's accomplished his mission and now he's crowned and he sits down at the right hand of the Father and he's inherited the name more glorious than all the angels. So it's an interesting argument and there's a f- I have a few minor little quibbles with it, but pretty much I, I accept it. So it, that, finding that book was a real stroke of luck. <laughs> or really of God's providence providing this for me. I read it in a single night. And it, it lit a fire in me to really start writing. So yesterday I wrote about three pages of my thesis. Not a huge amount of progress, but, you know, little by little, we're going to get there. And then, um, oh yeah, this morning we had a beautiful... Byzantine Divine Liturgy here at the seminary. I was the uh, the lector for that, so I sang the reading, and it's very lovely. You know, um, it's good to have that liturgy here at St. Patrick's, and little by little, every time we have it, it's getting a little bit better. <laughs> Our choir's getting better. We're getting more used to it. I'm getting more used to it. Of course, you know, I've uh, attended it many times at the Russian church in San Francisco, where my Spiritual director is the pastor there So I got to know the Divine Liturgy reasonably well The way that we celebrate it at the seminary is a little bit different, but I'm getting into the rhythm of that now as well And so every time we get to have it. It's just really a gift. I love to celebrate that liturgy because it's so prayerful um, the repetition of the chants and the way that they each one leads into the next It's just this unbroken song of praise from beginning to end, and it's really beautiful. So if you've never experienced a Byzantine divine liturgy, I hope one day that you get a chance. And I wish more of our seminarians would come to it, honestly, there's just a small handful of us who come to this, the rest will go to the earlier mass, the normal mass, you know? And uh, of course it doesn't help that we have the divine liturgy at the same time as brunch, so (laughs) guys really have to make a sacrifice to come to it, but it is worth it. Um, and I wish some would come at least just once to you know to see it to hear what it's like. But anyway, I digress. All right, so that's what's new with me. So that's you know you get a sense of what's been going on. And uh, yeah, I hope I hope to produce a podcast again next week and get back onto the weekly rhythm. But I'm gonna just hold short from making a promise about that just yet uh, because things have been moving at such a, a rapid pace. So. Enough about that. Let's talk a little bit about The Hobbit, since we are now two weeks into this wonderful work. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. So I am nearly to the end of The Hobbit now uh, after having read it for the past two weeks. So I'm not going to go through this chapter by chapter, but I thought I would just speak about a few things that struck me and maybe one or two controlling themes that I've seen in this work. So the first thing That I just want to say is this is my first time reading The Hobbit since I don't know I was a a kid I don't know when I read this like maybe 12 years old or something like that and I have not been back to it and guys I didn't even realize it I just figured I don't know I presumed that I had read this sometime recently and I I think the reason I think the reason I thought that is because I watched the new Peter Jackson Hobbit movies when they came out and so I kind of thought well I you know I, I know this story and, I do, I, I knew the shape of the story, that the dwarves come, Gandalf comes, and he brings the dwarves, and Bilbo gets dragged off kind of on this adventure, and they meet the trolls, and then they get kidnapped by goblins, and he meets Gollum, and then, you know, spiders, and finally they make it to the mountain, and I didn't really remember how it ended, and I won't talk about that yet, because we're not there yet in the reading schedule, but I did kind of have the shape of the story in mind. But there was much about it that surprised me (laughs) that I had forgotten, because it's been, I don't know, 10, 15 years, something like that, since I actually cracked this book open. So what surprised me about this? Well, um, the first thing I I think is worth mentioning is um, the way that the different races are portrayed in The Hobbit is quite different from how it is in The Lord of the Rings. And the first time we really get a hint of that is when we meet the elves uh, as they're heading into Rivendell. So this is after they've had their encounter with the trolls. And uh, then, I I believe it's after, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Let me just pull up the chapter here on my Kindle app so I can get you a little sample of how the elves speak to them. Uh, Yeah, the wood elves whom they meet in the, the woods there Uh, these elves are portrayed as really a more mischievous and really sort of a more ambiguous race than what we get in The Lord of the Rings. In The Lord of the Rings the elves are very clearly depicted as good, you know. And granted, we, we do get in the Silmarillion a more nuanced view of the elves with Feanor, for example, and his sons who lead the rebellion and they commit themselves to the Silmarils beyond all reason. And, uh, really rebel against the Valar. So we do get a more nuanced picture of the elves there. But in Lord of the Rings, the elves that we meet, they're portrayed very much as being on the side of goodness and being these very noble beings, sort of really beyond any other race in Middle-earth. They are the firstborn. And so they have a maturity and a, a, a poise and a grace and a nobility that surpasses everything else. There's something about them that speaks of the glory and the nobility of past ages and they participate somehow in the transcendent beauty as we were speaking of earlier more than the rest of the beings in middle earth do so uh, you need only think of legolas for example and how he runs upon the snow and and hardly leaves an imprint while the others the men have to labor their way pushing through the snowbanks, to get a sense of how these races are contrasted in the lord of the rings Well, in The Hobbit, it's not so. So here we are in chapter three, where the elves first show up. They're welcoming uh, Bilbo and Thorin and the rest of the company into their valley. And here's an example of uh, the elves' uh, manner of speaking to them. The elves sang a merry song as the party went across uh, the river. Don't dip your beard in the foam, father, they cried to Thorin, who was bent almost onto his hands and knees, It is long enough without watering it. (laughs) Mind Bilbo doesn't eat all the cakes, they called. He is too fat to get through keyholes yet. Hush, hush, good people, and good night, said Gandalf, who came last. Valleys have ears, and some elves have over-merry tongues. Good night. And so they came into the house of Rivendell, the house of Elrond. Now here's another interesting thing where we can see that Tolkien wrote this story earlier than his more developed mythology, and later he sort of tweaked some elements to make them fit better into the overall shape of Middle-earth's history. So he writes this about Elrond there. He says, The master of the house was an elf friend, one of those people whose fathers came into the strange stories before the beginning of history the wars of the evil goblins and the elves, and the first men in the north. In those days of our tale, there were still some people who had both elves and heroes of the north for ancestors, and Elrond, the master of the house, was their chief. He was as noble and as fair in face as an elf lord, as strong as a warrior, as wise as a wizard, as venerable as a king of dwarves, and as kind as summer." He comes into many tales, but his part in the story of Bilbo's great adventure is only a small one, though important, as you will see, if we ever get to the end of it. (laughs) And uh, that's another thing, just by the way, that I appreciate about The Hobbit. Although it's a bit jarring, coming as we did from The Silmarillion and The Unfinished Tales, Tolkien's style, his authorial voice in this novel, is very different. It reads just like a father telling a story to his kids. I mean, he really, he has these little asides, you know, if we ever get to the end of it. (laughs) Or uh, in the first chapter, he says at one point, he he breaks off mid-sentence and says, What is a hobbit? Like the children had just asked him that question, and he's repeating it. What is a hobbit? You don't know what a hobbit is? Let me tell you. And then he goes into this whole aside, describing about hobbits. So that also uh, lends just a different character, a different texture to this story. Um, It's not only the elves who are portrayed less nobly and with more of a kind of a childlike spirit, the whole story itself has that spirit, that flavor. It's less a high drama, a tale of noble deeds, and much more uh, a child's adventure tale. It's a different genre, almost, of fantasy. You could say there's the high fantasy of Lord of the Rings, but The Hobbit really is a fairy story that Tolkien has composed with children in mind. Now, it's not only the elves who are portrayed a bit differently, but also dwarves. And uh, here, towards the end of, what is it, chapter 12 or 13, um, we get a little something here about dwarves. It's as they're waiting out there, they found the secret door to enter into the mountain. And they want Bilbo to be the one to go inside, Um, After all, he is the burglar they've hired. And here's what Tolkien says about dwarves. So by the way, they're all standing around, and uh, Bilbo has agreed to go in, although he's none too happy about it, and he's wondering who will go with him. So it says, he he did not expect a chorus of volunteers, so he was not disappointed. (laughs) Fili and Kili looked uncomfortable and stood on one leg, but the others made no pretense of offering except old Balin, the lookout man, who was rather fond of the Hobbit. He said he would come inside at least, and perhaps a bit of the way too, ready to call for help if necessary. The most that can be said for the dwarves is this. They intended to pay Bilbo really handsomely for his services. They had brought him to do a nasty job for them, and they did not mind the poor little fellow doing it if he would, but they would all have done their best to get him out of trouble if he got into it as they did in the case of the trolls at the beginning of their adventures, before they had any particular reasons for being grateful to him. There it is. Dwarves are not heroes, but calculating folk with a great idea of the value of money. Some are tricky and treacherous and pretty bad lots. Some are not, but are decent enough people like Thorin and company, if you don't expect too much. So that is the introduction that we get to the dwarves. (laughs) Well, I shouldn't say introduction, we've already known them for the whole story, but that's this is the first time we kind of get this little authorial parenthesis where he describes the character of their race in general. And on the whole, the picture is not too flattering. Some of them, he basically says, some of them are not too bad. (laughs) But on the whole, they are pretty concerned with money and they're self-serving and not particularly brave, not a race of heroes. Of course, the Lord of the Rings goes to prove that wrong with uh, at least at least show there's an exception if that's the general rule with, uh, what's his name, Gimli, Gloin's son. And Gloin, we get to know a little bit in this story as a member of Thorin's company. Now the other thing worth mentioning is uh, goblins. Of course, goblins don't come into the rest of the legendarium at all. Lord of the Rings, or Silmarillion, or whatever. Uh, We hear time and again about orcs. Even from the earliest stories of the First Age, Sauron has created orcs by warping and twisting elves to make them his own dark servants. But this particular word, goblins, I mean, we don't get this anywhere else, so... Now, the way that I'm interpreting this, and I think this is correct, is that goblins are just a type of orc, Um, maybe kind of a lower, you know what I mean, a lower class of orc who are sort of out living on their own. They're not directly in the service of Sauron or uh, Saruman, still less. So they're, they're kind of their own little society, probably maybe descended from orcs, I don't know. But So they live on their own in the mountains, belonging to the same race, but distinct enough to have their own name. I think that's kind of the idea behind the goblins. Nevertheless, in this uh, story of The Hobbit, we don't meet any orcs, we only meet goblins. And uh, the goblins also, I would say, while the elves are a little bit less noble uh, in The Hobbit than in Lord of the Rings, the goblins are mm, not more noble, but maybe just a little bit less horrible than the orcs in Lord of the Rings. They're not portrayed as, I don't know, so degenerate as the orcs are. Uh, To be sure, you wouldn't want to come across them. They live in the depths of the mountains, and they're a pretty bad lot overall. Uh, You know, it says here page 60, the goblins were very rough and pinched unmercifully and chuckled and laughed in their horrible stony voices, and they began to sing this awful song, keeping time with the flap of their flat feet on the stone and shaking their prisoners as well. Clap, snap, the black crack, grip, grab, pinch, nab, and down, down to goblin town you go, my lad. This just gives you a little glimpse of the goblins. I mean, it's, it's in keeping with the overall flavor of the story, again, because these goblins are like the... Uh, villains in a children's story or a child's nightmare they're not so much like the orcs who are more directly and really a more mature developed you know image of degeneracy of, of villainy the goblins are just sort of this maybe the word is a more a simpler one-dimensional almost a caricature uh, of evil and so for example they're saying uh, they're saying pinch <laughs> nab grip grab you wouldn't ever hear orcs singing songs like that. In fact, I don't think the orcs in Lord of the Rings really sing at all. So maybe this is part of my sense of why the goblins are a little bit more harmless than the orcs are, because in the Lord of the Rings, only the good races sing. The elves sing, hobbits sing, even dwarves sing. Uh, Orcs don't sing. (laughs) Saruman doesn't sing. He's too concerned with high and mighty things for that. Sauron certainly doesn't sing, you know? So the good races who are more or less uncorrupted uh, sing, and, and the fact of their singing goes to show us that they're good, you know? Uh, so the fact that the goblins sing, to me, indicates that, well, yeah, they're pretty bad, and you don't want to fall into their captivity. Mm, I don't know. They're not quite so bad as all that, <laughs> as all that other lot, the orcs who were serving Sauron and so on. Okay, so that's my recap of the races in in The Hobbit. Oh, and the other thing that comes to mind, too, I just noticed this uh, yesterday as I read a couple chapters to get caught up last night. And I realized when they make it to Lake Town, uh, which is, let me see, Chapter 10, um, that's the first time we meet any human beings in the whole story so there's uh 19 chapters total so it's a little more than halfway through the story before we come across any human beings any men at all up to that point it's just hobbits swarves elves goblins and gandalf who looks like a, a man at least but he's we know he's actually one of the Maiar, one of these angelic spirits sent from valinor so i thought that was interesting as well just because of maybe the genre of the hobbit as fairy story um you know, typically the conceit with a fairy story is you get a, a child who somehow falls into fairyland, who gets drawn in, and so as the the reader, you get to um, you enter into the story along with him. He is the stand-in for the reader, or she is the stand-in for the reader, like Alice in Wonderland, for example. Get, Alice falls into Wonderland and so everything's new to Alice just like it's new to us and we experience it as new through that character. Well everything is kind of new to Bilbo but Bilbo is not a human being. He's not a human boy or girl. He is himself uh, one of these fantastic races and he belongs in fairyland quote-unquote in Middle-earth. So It's, it's interesting, interesting to me that Bilbo is kind of the stand-in for the reader we experience everything through Bilbo's eyes. Um, Excuse me, I want to make sure that I didn't cause an audio problem just now. Just testing, testing. Okay. I think I accidentally switched the the little switch on the side of my phone off and on. Just uh, habitually was playing with it. So hopefully that didn't cut out the sound there for a minute. But as I was saying, I think it's interesting that we experience this story from Bilbo's perspective Precisely because he's a hobbit, and he's the hero, and uh, <laughs> he's, not, he's not a human being. Humans play really a peripheral role in the whole thing. They come up in Lake Town. Of course, it ends up being a human who kills Smaug, which is uh, a great feat. It's no small thing. But as far as the story is concerned, it's actually not that important. The killing of Smaug, the dwarves and Bilbo are not involved in it at all. They're away in the mountain. Smaug goes to attack Lake Town, and Bard shoots him down with an arrow. And uh, it's completely outside the scope of what our heroic company. Uh, actually managed to do. In fact, if it was left up, left up to them, Smaug never would have been slain at all, probably, because none of them have any plan at all of how to deal with it. <laughs> it's only because they um, kind of get into the mountain and poke at Smaug. Bilbo gets down there and he's riddling with him and enrages him by stealing one of his cups. So Smaug goes out and he attacks Lake Town thinking that Bilbo, the thief, must be one of these lake men. And then he gets shot with Bard's arrow in his one weak spot and falls down into the lake and dies. So, you know what I mean? It's outside the scope of the company's action, which I think that's interesting as well. Because uh, you might be inclined to think this is a story about a group of unlikely heroes who band together to go and kill a dragon. And in fact, the, the, the very fact that they're not the ones to kill the dragon, I think, on the one hand, it's, it's quite unexpected and quite um, unusual for the genre of, fant- of fairy stories as a whole. But maybe that speaks a bit to one of the controlling themes of The Hobbit, at least I, I think it's one of the controlling themes, and it also sh- this, this also shows up in Lord of the Rings, there's continuity there. It's the question of what is courage? What does it mean to be brave? Um, What does it mean to set out on a heroic quest if you're not a hero? If your self-concept is not someone who goes out and does great deeds and wins glory? Bilbo, when we meet him in the beginning, one of the dwarves, I think Thorin, dismisses him saying he looks more like a grocer than a burglar. And Gandalf, of course, says there's more to him than meets the eye and you'll be glad he's with you before the journey's end. And sure enough, time and again, it's Bilbo who gets them out of a tight spot. It's uh, even, the first time is with the trolls. Bilbo really has no idea what he's doing, and he's very afraid, he doesn't particularly want to be the one to do this, but he goes out and he approaches the trolls and he tries to steal from one of the trolls' pockets. And so that's his first moment of real bravery um, that comes along. And then later, you know, they end up, uh, I mean, there's there's many occasions, but a few come to mind. They're going through the woods. Um, the spiders take all the dwarves, and they've got them all wrapped up. They're getting ready to eat them. And Bilbo comes up with this plan of how he's going to set them free. And he's acting very boldly. He puts on his ring, and he's throwing his voice and trying to attract the spiders to him over here, over there. And then he cuts the dwarves free, and he's sending them away. And he's holding off the spiders with his little sword. I mean... The way that he grows from this little guy in the beginning who has absolutely no sense of himself as a hero and the others have even less of a sense of him as a hero (laughs) to the end of the tale where he's become de facto the leader of the company. They all have a great respect for Mr. Baggins. And uh, they're looking to him to come up with the plans of what to do next, what to do about the dragon, how are they gonna recapture the mountain, they're the ones who are waiting for him to go in. <laughs> He's become essentially the leader. He's usurped Thorin in that role, even. And, uh, and Thorin allows it because he, he too respects Bilbo, and he sees how, how many times along the way their journey would have utterly failed if not for Bilbo's boldness and his cleverness, getting them out of danger. So to circle back to the question that I posed a minute ago, what does it mean, on the one hand, what does it mean to be courageous? And what does it mean especially for one who, maybe whatever, however you want to say it, by nature, by temperament, or by self-description, or whatever, one who's not a hero, to be courageous, to be bold. And I want to draw our attention to this particular line, which comes in chapter 12, I think, where Bilbo is entering into the mountain for the first time. So, uh... He's gone in a little ways with Balin beside him, the one dwarf who dared to enter in. Balin comes along for a while. Then he says, good luck. And he stops at the last moment. He can just barely see the light of the door. And Balin goes back. And so now Bilbo's all alone in the darkness. He puts on his ring to turn himself invisible. And he's going ahead very, very quietly down, down, down into the dark. And it says, he was trembling with fear, but his little face was set and grim. Already he was a very different hobbit from the one that had run out without a pocket handkerchief from Bag End long ago. He had not had a pocket handkerchief for ages. He loosened his dagger in its sheath, tightened his belt, and went on. Now you are in for it at last, Bilbo Baggins, he said to himself. You went and put your foot right in it that night of the party, and now you've got to pull it out and pay for it. Dear me, what a fool I was and am, said the least Tookish part of him. And I'll talk about that too in a second. I have absolutely no use for dragon-guarded treasures, and the whole lot could stay here forever. If only I could wake up and find this beastly tunnel was my own front hall at home. He did not wake up, of course, but went still on and on till all sign of the door behind had faded away. He was altogether alone. Soon he thought it was beginning to feel warm. Is that a kind of a glow I seem to see coming right ahead down there, he thought? It was. As he went forward, it grew and grew till there was no doubt about it. It was a red light steadily getting redder and redder. Also, it was now undoubtedly hot in the tunnel. Wisps of vapor floated up and past him, and he began to sweat. A sound, too, began to throb in his ears, a sort of bubbling, like the noise of a large pot galloping on the fire, mixed with a rumble as of a gigantic tomcat purring. This grew to the unmistakable gurgling noise of some vast animal, snoring in its sleep, down there in the red glow in front of him. It was at this point that Bilbo stopped. Going on from there was the bravest thing he ever did. The tremendous things that happened afterwards were as nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel. Alone, before he ever saw the vast danger that lay in wait. Now, I think that particular passage, especially that those last couple of sentences, is so key for understanding mm, the moral meaning, <laughs> if you want, of the Hobbit. And as always, I'll put my disclaimer here just to... Uh, make sure that Tolkien's not cross with me (laughs) wherever he is in eternal life, I hope that, uh, of course, this is not an allegory and so this, you know well, enough said about that, we've talked allegory to death, but nevertheless, the story does, I think, have a moral meaning and there's moral truths to be drawn out of it Um, and this is one of them, I think we can take Bilbo here as an example where He's in the tunnel all alone. He hears and he he feels and even smells the dragon coming down there, Uh, the dragon further down in the depths of the mountain. And he stops there. He's seized with fear. And there he fights the battle with himself. And he chooses to go on. That's what it means to be brave. And I don't care if... You're a hero or you're a hobbit. <laughs> That's what it means to be brave, to conquer yourself and to go on, particularly when it's it's up to you. And there's another scene I want to point to. It's when all the, hobbit, all the dwarves have been taken captive by the king of the wood elves and thrown in prison. Bilbo has just barely managed to sneak into the house of the wood king and uh, he's got his ring on and he's living invisibly Um, evading the elves, they don't know he's there, and he's stealing a little food, just trying to survive. He says, I'm like a burglar that can't get away, but must go on miserably burgling the same house day after day. This is the dreariest and dullest part of all this wretched, tiresome, uncomfortable adventure. I wish I was back in my hobbit hole by my own warm fireside with the lamp shining. He often wished, too, that he could get a message for help sent to the wizard. But that, of course, was quite impossible, and he soon realized that if anything was to be done, it would have to be done by Mr. Baggins, alone and unaided. And so that's precisely what Bilbo does. Uh, once he's realized that and he stopped feeling sorry for himself and wishing he was back home, then he begins to come up with a plan. And when he sees an opportunity, he puts it into action. It's a great risk. But because of him, the dwarves are all set free and they carry on with their quest. And so there's a great lesson to be learned there uh, for, for us from Bilbo because it's the lesson that we see him learning over the course of this adventure that transforms him from someone just living out of the Tookish side of, of or sorry, the Baggins-y, the ish side of his identity to one who also embraces the Tookish side of himself, which is the more bold, risk-taking uh, side. And so that, that's the final point I think I wanna to touch on here. Early on in The Hobbit and um, also various points throughout the story, like we heard there at that brief moment when he's entering the mountain, Um, There's this sense that so identity is passed down through the blood or genetically or, you know, you are uh, who your family is and it's handed down to you. So in the beginning parts of the chapter of of the story, um, the first chapter, I believe, yeah, the dwarves are there singing their song about retaking the lonely mountain. And it says, as they sang. The Hobbit felt the love of beautiful things made by hands, and by cunning and by magic moving through him, a fierce and a jealous love, the desire of the hearts of dwarves. Then something Tookish woke up inside him, and he wished to go and see the great mountains, and hear the pine trees and the waterfalls, and explore the caves, and wear a sword instead of a walking stick. He looked out of the window. The stars were out in a dark sky above the trees. He thought of the jewels of the dwarves shining in dark caverns. Suddenly in the wood beyond the water a flame leapt up, probably someone lighting a wood fire, and he thought of plundering dragons settling on his quiet hill and kindling it all to flames. He shuddered, and very quickly he was plain Mr. Baggins of Bag End Underhill again so this that's just one example there's many times where we get this reference to the Tookish part of bilbo or the bagginsy part (laughs) the mr baggins of bag end is a respectable hobbit who lives a quiet little life a cozy little life the Tookish part of him is the part that longs for adventure and to wear a sword and go into the caves and you know experience the wider world beyond the shire and uh it's this part also, which is associated with desire, like we get here, the love of beautiful things, uh, a fierce and a jealous love, very unhobbit like. <laughs> and that, of course, is the spark that Gandalf detected in Bilbo, which we read about in The Quest of Erebor at the end of the Unfinished Tales, which is why he picked him to go on the adventure in the first place. So, a question that we might ask is transposing this onto our own lives. Um, Is it the case that only those who have a kind of a a spark buried within them will find it in themselves to be a hero in the moment when either they must act or nothing will be done? In other words, does everyone have the capacity to do that or is it only those who have some Tookish part of themselves, even however deeply buried it might be, who have the capacity to stand up and to act when no one else can? I don't have an answer to that question uh, per se, but I think it's an interesting one that's worth pondering. Um, And perhaps this is the answer that I want to give. I think that uh, within within every soul, (laughs) there is a spark of (laughs) Tookishness. Because think about it. I mean, just from our Christian anthropology, We are all made for God. And as uh, um, uh, St. Irenaeus says, the glory of God is man fully alive. Gloria Dei Homo Vivens. To be fully alive, which is more than just, you know, to live kind of a cozy life, a comfortable life, that's not bad. But to be fully alive incorporates the fullness of human experience, which includes, yeah, a fierce and a dangerous love, taking risks, uh, standing up and fighting where necessary for goodness and truth, pursuing good things, um, taking up a noble quest, even putting your life on the line for others uh, when called to do so, uh, going into dark places to seek treasure. You know, I mean, there's many things that are. That are uh, part of the full what it means to be fully alive in a human way, and so given that that's the case, given that the glory of God is man fully alive, and we're made for God's glory, therefore I think everyone has buried within themselves this Tookish side, this spark, if you will, because that's how God made us. Now sometimes it might be very deeply buried indeed, uh, under feet upon feet of frozen soil. Nevertheless, I think the seed or the spark is there in everyone. Maybe you disagree, so I'd welcome uh, to hear your views on that very interesting question, particularly in light of the story. Um, Because, of course, (laughs) the way that Tolkien has written this story, it's very clear. None of the other hobbits could do what Bilbo does, right? None of the other hobbits they might have brought along would have been half so helpful in a pinch as Mr. Bilbo Baggins. And even the dwarves, who seem more heroic. The dwarves, at various moments, show themselves to be quite incapable (laughs) of the kind of heroic deeds that Bilbo can do. So it seems that he has a spark others do not. But let me know what you guys think about it. And uh, as always, I welcome your feedback. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts to Christ. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. All right. In these last minutes of the podcast, I want to speak to you a little bit about the liturgy. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) I prepared a little Uh, talk I was going to give to some altar servers this weekend, and in the end it fell through. I didn't have to give it. But I did spend some time thinking about what I was gonna say, so I thought I would just share it with you. Um, And it's based on the reading I've been doing from Hebrews, but also the book of Revelation. So I'm not gonna give it to you as I would necessarily give it to children, (laughs) but I'll just share with you some of the themes I've been thinking about. Uh, What I wanted to bring to the altar servers' minds, had I spoken to them, is that the earthly liturgy, the mass, that we experience in the churches day after day, week after week, this liturgy is a living image, a living icon of another liturgy, a heavenly liturgy. So we have two stages. There's earth and there's heaven. There's the church and there's the throne room of God, which is in eternity. Um, and something maybe worth saying here, too, is that, of course, the way that we speak about heaven is always analogical um, And so the images that we have when we talk about heaven fall far short of the reality, obviously. Nevertheless, our earthly liturgy is modeled after, or patterned after, the liturgy of heaven. And they're not only like two different things, um, one based upon the other. Like, mm, we have the play Julius Caesar, and it's based upon in a a more or less uh, accurate way the events of the life of Julius Caesar but the two really have nothing to do with each other one is portraying the other but uh, other than that they're totally separate it's not like that with the liturgy the earthly liturgy is an expression of the heavenly liturgy and the two are related because what we do in the earthly liturgy um, reflects what is happening eternally in the heavenly liturgy And as we do our thing in the earthly liturgy, in the church, the reality of the heavenly liturgy becomes present to us. It gets transmitted, it gets handed on to us, and we receive the reality of the heavenly liturgy through the earthly liturgy. So it's not only a, a living image or an even a living icon, but it becomes like a conduit through which we receive heavenly things, divine things, through human means. So that's a way to think of the liturgy. Um, and so, so here, here's a question, just to ponder. There's different people playing different roles in the earthly liturgy. Uh, There's the priest, of course, there's the people, all the the people gathered around, and there's also the ministers, the altar servers, and the lector, and the musicians, who each have their own roles to play. And we could expand it out even more and say there's the deacon, and there's the bishop, and etc. But we'll just stick to those kind of three categories, the priest, the ministers, and the people. Now, in the heavenly liturgy, as it's described by St. John in the book of Revelation. At the center, God is seated upon his throne. And interestingly, in this book by Jameson, I've been reading for my thesis, um, there's a quote that says in heaven, God alone sits. Everyone else is standing, ministering, but God alone sits uh, like the bishop (laughs) in a pontifical mass. The bishop sits Everyone else is ministering all around him. Like, as one bishop said, like a grand old man. (laughs) He's sitting in all his vestments and everyone around him is doing everything. So God in heaven is seated upon the throne and he is reigning with sovereignty uh, over, over all. Then you have the son, Jesus, who as Hebrew says, Jesus ascended to heaven and sits at God's right. And of course, the fact that he sits at the right hand of God upon the throne of God it is a clear indication of his divinity. The Son also is God, and so he sits in heaven. But in the book of Revelation, we see the Son is standing because he's ministering the sacrifice. He in fact is the priest who's offering the, the sacrifice. So just as the priest in our earthly liturgy stands at the altar and offers bread and wine, the Son stands in the heavenly sanctuary. And St. John says he's, he's one like a lamb who had been slain, but yet is standing upright. Very interesting. And what he offers is himself. So his own body, he is the sacrificial lamb. He offers his own flesh and blood, which is pierced for our sake upon the cross, then enters into the heavenly sanctuary and offers back to the Father his humanity, the humanity He assumed for us, for our salvation, now given up for our sake, and He gives it to God as a perfect spotless sacrifice. So this is the Son who's administering the sacrifice. Then there's a multitude of saints all around the Father and the Son, 144,000 saints who are standing and praising and worshiping God and the Lamb. They're singing their praises and they're all stand and they have the name of God on their foreheads which is very interesting. So these are the people who are marked by a special sign who belong to God. They're marked with his stamp, with his seal. And they're all gathered around and they're praising and they're worshiping and they're they're all kind of one. So this of course is the communion of saints. And in our earthly liturgy, it's the people who are standing about, like the Roman canon says, um, omnium circumstantium, which means all those who are standing around. (laughs) These are the ones who are standing around the sacrifice and joining into it by their prayers and praises and their songs of worship. But then there's all these angels, thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads of angels in the heavenly sanctuary. And Hebrew says that the angels are ministering spirits. So they do all these different things. So you have the cherubim, the highest angels, and they're standing right around the God and the Lamb, the Father and the Son. And they're singing the thrice holy hymn, holy, holy, holy. Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. So they're continually singing this song of praise. They're kind of leading the worship. And then other angels, some are offering incense. And the incense goes up before the throne of God, and it's mingled with the prayers of all the faithful people. And other angels, some of them are blowing trumpets, and some of them are kind of going down into the heavens and announcing the gospel to earth, (laughs) announcing things. So the angels are doing all these jobs. So, uh, just like in our earthly liturgy, we have all these ministers, altar servers, yes, lectors, musicians, um, the thurifer offering the incense. The angels in heaven uh, are the the corresponding ministers in the heavenly liturgy to the ministers in our earthly liturgy. So um, I would I would not have presented this in nearly so much detail <laughs> to the altar servers, but what I intended to get across to them is in this liturgy of the mass in which we all play a part and we reflect something of the glories of heaven you have a very special role and likewise all of you listening if you have some role in the mass well even if even if you don't have a ministering role you have a very very important role to play but i'll get to that in a sec but the minister is in a special way because they image the angels the glorious angels and so all of our tasks in the liturgy, you know, we've got to be careful that they don't just become routine. We need to do them with all our heart and all our soul, and to do them in a way that's very, very reverent, and, uh, you know, in keeping with all the liturgical laws and so on, <laughs> because of the great dignity of the role. And we have to represent the angels well. The angels in heaven are not sitting around, you know, they're not kicking their feet or fidgeting their hands or (laughs) daydreaming or falling asleep or something or whispering to their neighbors. They're totally focused on the sacrifice and the little jobs that they have which go along with that and make it possible. Um, Yeah, and then I should just mention uh, the the vocation of the 144,000, the multitude of the saints who are there, their dignity, in a sense, is even greater than that of the ministering spirits, the angels, because the 144,000 are the ones who have won the victory. Um, that's what uh, that's what uh, I think it's the angel who's speaking to, to St. John says when he asks, who are these? The angel says, you know who they are. These are the ones who have endured the great trial and have won the victory, washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb, and have now entered into their glory. And so all those who are gathered around at the liturgy... Like the angels are one thing. The angels are... The angels are like... They're perfect already. <laughs> the angels, you know... They're... Um, they don't have much to lose or much to gain. They've already gone through their test. Um, they didn't fall in the beginning. So they're completely given over to God. And the angels... Um, have this immense glory that's theirs by nature. But human beings are worth something more than angels in the sight of God. Because human beings go through the test of life on earth. And our wills are malleable and formable. And we can go through the course of life and become sons of God. Or not. This is our great freedom. And so the ones who have endured the test, who've made it through the trials, and who have become sons of God in the image of Jesus, the Eternal Son, and now entering into the heavenly liturgy, these are like great dignitaries. These are like you know what I mean. These are like the God's like most favored, most favored ones. His most special. I don't want to say guests because they're part of the family, but God welcomes them with such incredible joy. The angels have always been there with him and they're serving in the liturgy or they're doing the jobs, but the 144,000, they are the apple of God's eye, every one of them, and it's their great joy now to have won the victory, finished the race, and now they're in the heavenly liturgy. They've already accomplished their goal. Do you see what I mean? So in the earthly liturgy, It's not that only the ministers have a special role, but every single one of us there, we're all engaged in this war, in this battle together of being formed into God's sons and daughters. And so every single one of those who are in the pews, who are praying and worshiping along with the Holy Sacrifice and the Mass is of immeasurable value. And each of us unites our prayers and our voices to the sacrifice, whether you're part of the multitude or you're one of the ministers or even the priest. He has a particular role, of course, but all unite together their prayers and sacrifices to make the spotless offering of praise to God. So that is, in uh, (laughs) different words than I would have used for the altar servers, what I wanted to teach them about today. I wanted to also share with you guys this prayer from the Byzantine Divine Liturgy. It's the anaphora of St. John Chrysostom it speaks to what I've just been saying and so I'll give it to you here now don't get caught up by particular words with Byzantine prayer you've got to just let it wash over you (laughs) because they'll say the same thing 10 different ways and the point is you just get caught up in the mystery of it so here's what they say and you'll notice that this is uh, similar to the Eucharistic preface we get in the Roman rites but a bit different so here's what the priest says It is proper and right to hymn you, to bless you, to praise you, to give thanks to you and to worship you in every place of your dominion. For you, O God, are ineffable, inconceivable, invisible, incomprehensible, existing forever and forever the same. You and your only begotten Son and your Holy Spirit. You brought us out of nothing into being And when we had fallen away, you raised us up again. You left nothing undone until you had led us up to heaven and granted us your kingdom, which is to come. For all these things we thank you, and your only begotten Son, and your Holy Spirit, for all things we know and do not know, for blessings manifest and hidden that have been bestowed on us. We thank you also for this liturgy, which you have deigned to receive from our hands, even though thousands of archangels and tens of thousands of angels stand around you, the cherubim and the seraphim, six-winged, many-eyed, soaring aloft upon their wings, singing the triumphal hymn, exclaiming, proclaiming, and saying, and then here begins, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, etc. And then the prayer continues, Together with these blessed powers, O Master, who loves mankind, we also exclaim and say, Holy are you, and most holy, you and your only begotten Son, and your Holy Spirit. Holy are you, and most holy, and sublime is your glory. And etc. It goes on and on like fireworks <laughs> going up to God. Uh, But what I wanted to share in particular is that image. God is in heaven surrounded by all these angels, but he is most pleased to receive from us our earthly liturgy offered up as a sacrifice to him. And there's a prayer in the Roman liturgy which says something like, send your holy angel, or may your holy angel carry up to heaven this sacrifice, something like that. I've got it completely wrong, but it's something like that. God, send an angel from heaven to come and collect this sacrifice and bring it up (laughs) to your heavenly sanctuary. Um, So each each of our different rites, in different ways, expresses this same idea that uh, God is just so delighted by our earthly liturgy. Even though he is in the glory of heaven, he has no need of it. He's delighted by it because he loves us and he wants for us to be united with him forever. And this is the means that he has set up for us, even while we're on earth in exile, in this valley of tears, to participate in the eternal glory for which we were made. So dear friends, I hope that this uh, stirs up in you a greater love and reverence for the holy sacrifice for the mass, the divine liturgy, whether of the Roman rites or the Eastern rites or whatever, you may be attending in your own parishes. And uh, yeah, I think I'd better call it a day now. My voice is getting a little hoarse. But um, I pray that this Sunday is a blessed day of rest, Sabbath for each one of you, and that the week to come is filled with many graces. And hopefully I will speak to you again next week. Until then, may Almighty God bless us, protect us from all evil,